If you're listening to this podcast, it's because you're interested in LA, or maybe you're planning a trip, and you probably have questions, lots of questions. Circa's new concierge feature will change how you travel. You can connect with us directly through the Circa app and we'll put you in touch with your very own local concierge to ask any questions you have. No matter when you're traveling, let us help make your trip to Los Angeles one to remember. For a limited time only, the Circa Concierge is completely free. So download the Circa app from the iOS app store and connect with us. You've got questions, we've got the answers. Circa, love the world you live in and we'll help you explore it. Welcome to Circa. In this episode, we're going to take you on a dark tour of Los Angeles. You'll hear about a lot of places and events, but don't worry about writing anything down. As with all our episodes, there will be notes in the Circa app. So just sit back, put your headphones on, and enjoy the dark ride through LA. Circa, love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it. A few years ago, a friend of mine was driving some visiting family members to one of LA's must-do experiences, very fancy sushi. And when she turned down Bundy Drive, she casually mentioned, we're just about to drive past where Nicole Brown Simpson and Ron Goldman were killed. Everyone in the car immediately yelled at her to pull over. So she pulls over, right in front of the unmistakable condo complex where Nicole and Ron's lives had ended. A somber silence grips the car. There are sharp intakes of breath as everyone stares at what is a completely unremarkable condo complex. Unremarkable, except for the fact that it had clearly been forever emblazoned in their memories. In 1994, that condo entrance had been plastered on every magazine, gossip rag, and newspaper for months on end. And all these years later, everyone in that car was still enthralled by this story. Like the people who populate this city, the crimes that happen here seem fit for the big screen. In a place full of cameras, paparazzi, and superstars, it makes sense. If you take a survey of the most infamous and well-known crimes and trials of the century, the ones seared into your memory like that nondescript condo entrance, a considerable handful of them are a product of the City of Angels. My name is JJ Duncan. I've been a producer and a storyteller in Los Angeles for almost 20 years, and there's nothing quite like the true crime stories of LA, a place where the shiniest people have the darkest secrets. That juxtaposition is woven into the city's DNA, L.A. sets the scene for these crimes, and these crimes end up changing the scene in L.A. So now I'm going to tell you about four crimes which defined their era in Los Angeles, and after which the city was never the same again.
The Black Dahlia, Hollywood's most famous murder. The myth of Elizabeth Short is, this is what happens to starstruck girls from little towns back east who come out to big bad Hollywood with ideas of getting into movies. Terrible things happen. Larry Harnish, Los Angeles Times editor and writer. It was January 9th, 1947, when a beautiful, raven-haired 22-year-old arrived at the Biltmore. She wasn't the Black Dahlia back then. She was Elizabeth Short. She'd come to L.A. for a fresh start. The Millennium Biltmore Hotel is one of the most iconic hotels in Los Angeles. Rising 11 stories above the city's downtown, when it had its grand opening in 1923, it instantly became the largest hotel in the U.S. west of Chicago. And I've got to say, if you're visiting downtown, the Biltmore is a must-see. The entire place is styled in a Spanish and Italian Renaissance design. It's got these beautiful frescoes and murals that were painted by the Italian master John B. Smeraldi, known for his work in the Vatican and the White House. Even the ceilings, with their breathtaking Moorish beams, are incredible. But besides style, this place has history. From 1930 to 1943, the early Oscars were hosted at the Biltmore, and in fact, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences itself was created there over lunch one day in 1927. Legend has it, the first image of what would become the Oscar statue was sketched onto one of the Biltmore's napkins. In 1960, JFK was nominated for the presidency here. His office was in what was now the lobby, and Lyndon B. Johnson's was in the Emerald Room. The famous prom scene from 1986's Pretty in Pink was filmed in this hotel, and so much more. But that's not why we're here. If you head into the hotel's gallery bar and cognac room, you'll learn about another piece of the hotel's history, a much darker piece. Pull up a stool at the gallery bar, where carved angels elegantly grace the granite bar. On the menu, you'll find one of the hotel's signature drinks, made of citrion vodka, Chambord, and Kahlua, this is the Black Dahlia, so named because the Biltmore is where one of the most famous murder victims of the 20th century spent her last known night on Earth. It was January 9, 1947, when Elizabeth Short arrived at the Biltmore. She wasn't alone. A man named Robert Red Manley had taken her there. Now, let's stop right here. Unless you're a true Black Dahlia aficionado, the image you probably have about Elizabeth Short is wrong. In the seven decades since her murder, she's been miscast as everything from a sex worker to a con woman to a star of the lurid stag films of the era. Her life and her death fit a convenient morality narrative that was being pushed at the time. Women needed to step back into the kitchen and let the men take over again, lest bad things happen to our society, and perhaps to them. It's a well-worn story. The women of World War II had been asked to step up, to head to the cities, the assembly lines, the volunteer forces, the veterans' hospitals. And now that the war was over, they were being asked to kindly step back down. Elizabeth, a single woman who'd been living and traveling alone, who worked and had dated several men, became the cautionary tale of what might happen to other young ladies if they didn't follow that new post-World War II order. And L.A. especially played into that narrative. It was then, as it still is today, viewed as a new Babylon, a place of flexible morality, so to speak. But Elizabeth wasn't a prostitute or a con woman. 
Even her name, the Black Dahlia, not so dark, really. She'd gotten it from customers in a pharmacy she frequented, who nicknamed her after the 1946 crime noir film, The Blue Dahlia, and swapped it for black because of Elizabeth's beautiful black hair. On the night Elizabeth Short was dropped off at the Biltmore in downtown Los Angeles, she was a woman adrift. And more to the point, she was actually a woman in grief. Earlier in the 1940s, as World War II raged, Elizabeth had met and fallen for an Army Air Force pilot named Major Matt Gordon Jr. He'd proposed marriage while overseas flying P-51s in the Asian theater, and Elizabeth had accepted. Elizabeth had purportedly written Gordon 27 letters in less than two weeks. But then, just five days before the war with Japan came to an end, Gordon was killed in a crash. Elizabeth was devastated. Depressed and desperate, she'd left home on the East Coast to head for California. But life in L.A., as it can be for so many new transplants, was not easy. Elizabeth struggled to make ends meet. It would later be reported that she'd gone with a lot of men in her final months. But in fact, many of these dates and friendships had simply been ways for Elizabeth to score a meal, a ride, or a couch to sleep on. And in fact, on that last night at the Biltmore, Elizabeth was homeless. She'd gone to San Diego to couch surf with a friend when she met Red Manley, a pipe clamp salesman. They'd spent about a week hanging out when Manley said he was headed to Los Angeles for a business trip. Elizabeth saw a free ride back to L.A. and took it. And now, women, I know many of you can relate to this, she wanted the ride from Manley, but it seems she didn't want much more. So she made up a story. She told Manley that she was meeting her sister at the Biltmore. And so that's where Manley took her. But once they arrived, Manley insisted on waiting with Elizabeth. Was he calling her bluff? Maybe. But now Elizabeth was in deep. Later, hotel employees would recall that Elizabeth made several phone calls from the lobby while she was there with Manley. Manley waited with her for a few hours before he finally called it quits and left Elizabeth alone at the hotel. Once he left, so did Elizabeth. She walked out of the Biltmore's entrance, headed south toward 6th Street and into history. It's morning in the Leimert Park neighborhood of South Central L.A., and it's six days later, January 15, 1947. It's about 10 a.m., and Betty Bursinger, a housewife with a young toddler, is out for a morning stroller walk. Today, Leimert Park is a diverse neighborhood with a lively, thriving African-American community. In fact, at one point, it was dubbed the Black Greenwich Village by the late filmmaker John Singleton, if you happen to be passing through the last Sunday of the month, be sure to check out the Leimert Park Art Walk along 43rd Place, where you'll find local art pop-ups, incredible food, spoken word, and a legendary drum circle that'll get your liver vibrating. We'll drop a link in the notes for you. But back in 1947, it is an all-white, middle-class enclave, one of L.A.'s first planned communities. And as Betty strolls along Norton Avenue, she spots something in an abandoned lot. At first, Betty thinks it's a mannequin. The figure lies in two pieces, a torso and head, and a lower half. And it is so white, Betty recalls, that she was positive it was a doll. But as she approaches it, the horrible truth slowly reveals itself. It is no mannequin. It is Elizabeth. Her body had been bisected, with near-surgical precision, at the waist. 
and a horrible clown's smile had been carved into her face, which had clearly been beaten badly. Her body was chalk-white because it had been completely drained of blood. Whoever had killed her had known what they were doing. And the killer wanted people to find her. In the 1940s, there was no shortage of hidden valleys and hills around L.A. where one could dump a body. To put it in such a central location and in a residential neighborhood was a message to the community. Be afraid. Elizabeth was face up. She had been posed with her elbows bent at right angles, her hands over her head, and her legs spread. At approximately 11 a.m., Betty places a call to the LAPD to report the body. The murder is immediately a sensation. Nearly a dozen officers and detectives descend on the lot. They are closely followed by a gaggle of newspaper reporters and photographers. This will be one of the last truly huge stories to be covered before the rise of television. Back then, there were four major papers in the city, the Los Angeles Times, the Herald Express, the Examiner, and the Daily News, and they competed for breaking news. The gruesome murder landed like a bomb on their front pages. And in fact, one of these papers wouldn't just report on the case, they would actually find themselves in the middle of it. The examiner's reporters were known to be some of the most shrewd, perhaps even unethical, of the bunch. As the police puzzle over how to figure out who this unidentified young woman is, the examiner reporters hear that the LAPD plans to mail her fingerprints to the FBI. So they interject and suggest that the LAPD can use a new piece of technology their newsroom had just acquired, a sound photo machine, which was an early fax machine. But in return, they want the scoop on who she was. Amazingly, the LAPD agrees. Once the examiner has Elizabeth Short's name, one of their reporters, Wayne Sutton, tracked down Elizabeth's mother. Under the guise that Elizabeth has won a modeling contest in Los Angeles, he interviews her mother to obtain as many details as he can about her. Then, at the end of the phone call, Sutton drops the ruse and informs Mrs. Short that her daughter is, in fact, dead. With her identity out and the reporters one step ahead, the police start to scramble. But once again, the examiner is one step ahead of the LAPD. They track down where her belongings are stowed and interview her friends before the LAPD can find them. Then they discover that she had checked luggage at a bus station in L.A. The examiner agrees to tell the LAPD where the suitcases are under the condition that they open the suitcase at the examiner's offices. And again, amazingly, the LAPD agrees. When the detectives crack the suitcase open, they find photographs, clothing, and letters Elizabeth had exchanged with boyfriends. The examiner goes to work tracking down those boyfriends and eventually prints the private letters in their paper. The police and newspapers have her identity, her friends, her clothes, and her letters. But they don't have her killer. And the more information reporters divulge to the public, the harder it gets for detectives to get a handle on the case. An early suspect is, of course, Red Manley, but he has a solid alibi that checks out. Ex-boyfriends are also ruled out one by one as the LAPD struggles with more tips, the vast majority of them bogus, than they can ever hope to sift through. And then a chilling new development in the case. 
It's January 25, 1947, 10 days since Elizabeth's body was found, and an envelope arrives at the examiner. When it is opened, it contains Elizabeth's birth certificate, social security card, newspaper clippings, and her personal address book. The killer is now actively taunting the newspapers and LAPD, and this new detail only serves to sensationalize the case even more. The public is entranced by the murder, and the people of L.A. are scared. It becomes the only story anyone is talking about. But despite it all, the tips, the taunting letters, the address book of suspects, nobody is ever charged with Elizabeth's murder. A life unfinished, a murder unsolved, and a city uneasy. Now, after decades with no conviction, the truth is that we will likely never know for sure who killed Elizabeth Short, but there are two leading contenders. Both of them were doctors. Both of them were more than a little strange and had found themselves embroiled in controversy before Elizabeth was murdered. And both of them, depending on who you believe, had motive, opportunity, and access to Elizabeth Short. The first suspect is Dr. Walter Bailey, a Los Angeles surgeon. Dr. Bailey was a prominent doctor and professor at USC Medical School in the mid-40s. He was married to his wife, Ruth, and together they had three children. Life seemed to be going well for Dr. Bailey and his family. But by 1946, things took a turn. First, the Bailey's son was hit and killed by a driver in Lemert Park. Then, Dr. Bailey began displaying strange behavior. He left his wife and daughters and openly took up with a mistress. This shocking turn of events created a scandal in their community and earned Dr. Bailey an infamous reputation, one that eventually contributed to him losing his prestigious positions. By January of 1948, one year after Elizabeth Short was murdered, he was dead of a brain disease. Now, for the circumstantial evidence. First, There was the Bailey's place of residence, just one block from where Elizabeth's bisected body was displayed for all to see. From the start, one of the original detectives working on her case, Detective Harry Hansen, believed that her killer was a man with surgical experience. The cuts to Elizabeth's body were so precise, the blood drained so thoroughly, and Dr. Bailey's specialty happened to be hysterectomies and mastectomies. Simply put, he knew his way around the human body. Next, access. It turns out Dr. Bailey's daughter, Barbara, was friends with Elizabeth Short's sister. She had even served as a witness for Barbara's wedding. Could it be that one of the phone calls Elizabeth had made from the Biltmore was to her sister's friend, someone she knew who lived nearby? Now, there's a theory about why Elizabeth's tormented body was found in Lemert Park. It's easy to believe that this crime was meant to terrify the public, and specifically that neighborhood— Could it be that Dr. Bailey, who had been shunned by his friends and neighbors for his affair, and who years earlier had lost his son at the hands of a driver there, had a score to settle? And lastly, there is the matter of Dr. Bailey's own death. He died in 1948 of a degenerative brain disease, and it turns out that that disease, called encephalomalacia, can cause violent outbursts in sufferers who previously had no history of violent behavior, In the two years prior to his death, he had indeed displayed a marked personality change. He had disinherited his wife, lost his job, 
and had started watching film reels of autopsies at home. But whatever secrets Dr. Bailey held went to the grave with him in 1948. There is no way to know if he is truly the killer. Suspect number two is Dr. George Hodel Jr. George was another prominent doctor in Los Angeles. And like Dr. Bailey, there is a mountain of circumstantial evidence. But perhaps the most convincing evidence against him is the person who accused him of killing Elizabeth, his own son, Detective Steve Hodel, a former homicide detective with the LAPD. Dr. Hodel rubbed elbows with the cream of the Hollywood crop. He lived in one of the most extravagant and eccentric homes in all of Hollywood, the John Soden House, which is on Franklin Avenue in Hollywood. And sidebar here, this is a must-see, because this house is, it's bonkers. It's a dark, brooding, Mayan revival house designed by Lloyd Wright, Frank Lloyd Wright's son. It was in the movie The Aviator. It's truly stunning and so bizarre. You can view it from the sidewalk on Franklin Avenue, or you can check out a 3D tour of it online. And if Stephen Hodell is right, it was in the basement of that very house that Elizabeth was held, tortured, and eventually killed. Now, like Dr. Bailey, Dr. Hodell was another man embroiled in scandal. But unlike Dr. Bailey, this wasn't Dr. Hodell's first rodeo. He first found himself on the LAPD's radar in 1945, two years before Elizabeth's murder, when his secretary mysteriously died of an apparent overdose. From the beginning, there were questions of foul play, and Dr. Hodell was a suspect, but there was never enough evidence to charge him. When Elizabeth was murdered in 1947, Dr. Hodell didn't initially make it into LAPD's list of suspects. But that all changed two years later because in 1949, his daughter, Tamar, accused him of incest. During her questioning by LAPD detectives, she told them that her father had killed the Black Dahlia. Her accusation was convincing enough that the LAPD actually assigned an 18-man team to surveil Dr. Hodell, including installing a wiretap on his phone. And what that wiretap records him saying is nearly unbelievable. Quote, Supposing I did kill the Black Dahlia. They can't prove it now. They can't talk to my secretary anymore because she's dead. They thought there was something fishy. Anyway, now they may have figured it out. Killed her. Maybe I did kill my secretary. And there's more. During the LAPD's investigation, several friends eventually came forward stating that Dr. Hadell had a relationship of some kind with Elizabeth, either as romantic partners or as patient doctor. In fact, by April 1950, one of the detectives on the case had gathered enough evidence to charge Dr. Hadell and was about to arrest him for Elizabeth Short's murder when Dr. Hadell left or perhaps fled the United States. Dr. Hodell would spend the next 40 years living abroad, or on the run. When he died in 1999, his son, Detective Steve Hodell, wanted to learn more about his father's life. He uncovered a file that had been collecting dust at LAPD for over 50 years. The file was titled, George Hodell, Black Dahlia File. And that is when Steve realized that his father had been a prime suspect in the Black Dahlia killing. So who killed Elizabeth Short? We will likely never know. But Elizabeth's murder sent shockwaves through a post-World War II-era Los Angeles. It crushed the last measure of togetherness and patriotism that had carried most people through the war. 
It created a frenzy that was arguably the first time a media firestorm had led a murder case. But it wouldn't be the last. Just over 20 years after Elizabeth took that last walk from the Biltmore, another shocking crime would paralyze LA and spell the end of an era. We're leaving the World War II 40s and we are headed to the far out 60s. Hi everyone, Circa's recruiting new concierges. A Circa concierge is a friend to ask anywhere in the world. Real people, on the ground, never bots. If you want to be a concierge for your city, go to circatravel.com to sign up. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The night the 60s died. Charles Manson. Many people I know in Los Angeles believe that the 60s ended abruptly on August 9, 1969, ended at the exact moment when word of the murders of Cielo Drive traveled like brush fire through the community, and in a sense, this is true. The tension broke that day. The paranoia was fulfilled. Joan Didion. It's 1969. Los Angeles is ground zero for the counterculture movement sweeping America. Places like Laurel Canyon and the Sunset Strip are exploding with music and youth. And someone we met earlier is right in the thick of it. Tamar Hadell, Dr. George Hadell's daughter, the one who accused him of abuse and of murdering the Black Dahlia. Now, you've all heard of the game Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, right? Well, I gotta say, when you dig into the crimes that have defined L.A., you find a lot of strange connections and coincidences, and this is one of them. There will be more. Tamara Hodel has survived her father's abuse and has found herself at the vanguard of the scene in 60s L.A. And by this point, her best friend is a name you might recognize, Michelle Phillips, one of the four members of the Mamas and the Papas. Tamar and the band are always hanging out, and when they do, it's often at the house of Michelle's fellow mama, Cass Elliott. Mama Cass has basically become the den mother for the new crop of rock and folk musicians whose sound will define the 60s. Crosby, Stills and Nash, Joni Mitchell, Eric Clapton, and Frank Zappa. Her house, which is this incredible English country-style home nestled in the creative hideaway of Laurel Canyon, is their base. If you want to drive by, we'll put directions in the notes. On the way, you should stop and grab a pastrami sandwich or a latte at the Canyon Country Store, a local institution that has served the rock stars and actors who live in the canyon for over 50 years, including all those musicians that hung out with Mama Cass. Now, if you want to dive deeper into the music scene of L.A., you should listen to the California Sound episode of our L.A. Guide, the story of L.A. music from the 60s in the canyon to the birth of West Coast hip-hop in Compton. 
Okay, so on any given weekend in the late 60s, if you were to find yourself at a party at Mama Cass's, you might also meet someone else. He's a tiny guy with long hair and a certain almost hypnotic charisma. He's got designs on becoming a musician, you see, and he's making headway in the scene. The Beach Boys know him. They're even considering recording with him. Neil Young knows him, and now he's found himself in the hospitable graces of Mama Cass Elliot, and he's not on Spotify. I was talking to myself to see if I was listening. It's Charles Manson. That's him singing. And L.A. doesn't know it, but there's a ticking clock on the summer of love, and Charlie's got the stopwatch. It's almost impossible to imagine a more impactful, disruptive, and tragic decade than the 1960s in L.A. Hollywood's biggest bombshell, Marilyn Monroe, is found dead of a drug overdose in her Brentwood, Los Angeles home. In 1965, the Watts riots erupt, the largest riots the city has ever seen. The Vietnam War begins to rage out of control, and LSD escapes the lab and makes it onto the streets. In 1968, Robert F. Kennedy is assassinated right here in Los Angeles at the Ambassador Hotel, leaving 11 more Kennedy children without a father and a generation without a true leader. And throughout the entire decade, a new sound and the subculture it birthed is flourishing. Folk music and the California sound has arrived. Throngs of young people flock to the city to see and be seen, Besides Casa Cass in Laurel Canyon, one of the epicenters of this movement is the Sunset Strip. Places like Pandora's Box and the Whiskey A Go-Go, which is still here, make the careers of musicians like The Doors, The Birds, and Buffalo Springfield. In fact, you know that seminal Buffalo song, For What It's Worth? There's a man with a gun over there telling me I gotta beware. I think it's time we stop. Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. Stephen Stills wrote it about a violent protest that erupted in front of Pandora's box when the city of L.A. tried to enforce a 10 p.m. curfew for its teenagers to stop them from hanging out at places like Pandora's box. L.A. is chock full of young kids looking for connection, community, and something to protest. If they are lucky, they find it in surfing, in beautiful music, in free love. But for about 100 hippies who aren't so lucky, they find Charles Manson. Born to a teenaged, alcoholic mother, Charles spends most of his childhood in and out of foster homes and reformatory schools, and then as an adult in and out of prison. When he's finally paroled in 1967, he's actually so accustomed to prison that he asks to stay. Jail is the only home he's ever known. But alas, he is released into the wild. The world when Charles went to prison was the buttoned-up world of the nifty 50s. The world he's released into might as well have been another planet. Charles makes his way to one of the epicenters of the new counterculture, Berkeley, California. He learned to play guitar in prison, so he begins playing music to panhandle for money. Now, he doesn't make much cash, but his charming personality and guitar skills do start to earn him something else. Before long, he has at least 18 women living with him. By the end of that year, Charles and his followers paint an old bus and head to Los Angeles. 
Once he arrives, his reputation only grows. More people are taken by his charisma and big ideas, despite the fact that what he's preaching is largely about a coming race war. In late 1968, Charles Manson has amassed a following of nearly 100 lost souls who think they've found the second coming of Christ. They follow him. Some of them worship him. And in less than eight months, they will kill for him. The killings begin when Charles's dream dies. When Charles gets to L.A., he, like so many others then and now, has grand visions of becoming a philosopher or musician. In prison, he'd even told people that one day he'd be bigger than the Beatles. So when he gets to L.A., he is dead set on needling his way into the scene. And he's about to get his chance. One day in the late spring of 1968, several of Manson's girls, members of the so-called Manson family, are hitchhiking in Malibu. A man pulls over to give them a ride. The man is Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys. He takes them to his rented house on Sunset Boulevard in the Pacific Palisades. And they kind of just don't leave. Dennis goes out, and when he comes back, there's a party going on. And a dirty, bearded stranger walks out to meet him in his own driveway. Dennis asks if the man is going to hurt him. So now, let's just clock this. Dennis Wilson was a troubled man and an addict. But he takes one look at Charles Manson and knows he's in trouble. No, 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 the bearded dude says. And then, to prove it, he drops to his knees and he actually kisses Dennis's feet. He introduces himself. I'm Charlie and I'm going to be a music legend, like you. The time the Manson family spends at Dennis Wilson's house is disastrous. They wreck more than one of his cars, including a Ferrari, destroy his credit, and spark an STD outbreak. It only gets worse from there. But it all starts because Charles thinks he's about to become a star. We're going to take you through what happens next pretty quickly, but if you'd like to dig in more, check out the L.A. Charles Manson episode of our travel podcast, Passport. The link is in the notes. So Dennis agrees to listen to some of Charlie's music. He even introduces him to several of his well-known, world-famous music producer friends. One of them is Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day, and one of the most successful music producers of his generation. Dennis takes Charles to meet him at Terry's rented house on Cielo Drive, which Terry shares with his girlfriend actress, Candace Bergen. Charles auditions for Terry, but Terry declines to sign him. He wasn't sold on Charles's music, but Terry was entranced by Charles himself and the communal life he was living with his followers at their new home base at Spawn Ranch, a sprawling one-time Western film set. Spawn Ranch, which was about an hour north of downtown L.A., doesn't exist anymore. It burned down decades ago, but we put some pictures of it in the notes for you. Dennis Wilson, meanwhile, tells Charles that he will include one of his songs, Cease to Exist, on the Beach Boys' next album. For a brief moment, Charles Manson and the family are positive that this is it, his break. But then, one by one, his chances evaporate. Then comes the final insult in Charles's eyes. When Charlie's song, Cease to Exist, is released by the Beach Boys, he realizes they've changed the words, the tune, the title, and, most enraging to Charles, the credit. Dennis Wilson is given solo writing credit for the song, now called Never Learn Not to Love. Charles is livid. 
He has his followers take him to Dennis's house. He calls Dennis out and hands him a single bullet and says this, according to an interview Dennis Wilson gave. It's a bullet. Every time you look at it, I want you to think how nice it is your kids are still safe. Dennis beats the shit out of Charles. Face and ego bruised, Charles retreats back to Spawn Ranch and starts to plot his revenge. On March 23, 1969, Charles visits the house on Cielo Drive again, looking for Terry Melcher. But when he arrives, he doesn't find Terry. Instead, he finds famous actress Sharon Tate, star of Valley of the Dolls and the Beverly Hillbillies. She's a little weirded out by this dirty, disheveled-looking man, but then Charlie leaves. Throughout that spring and summer, Charles and the Manson family begin to get into more trouble. Several members have run-ins with the police. Some of them have been stealing and chopping up cars. Another one has a shootout with a drug dealer over a deal gone bad. Then everything really hits the fan. On July 25, 1969, Manson family member Bobby Boussoulet, along with Mary Bruner and Susan Atkins, go to the home of Gary Henman, a music teacher and a Ph.D. student at UCLA and a sometimes follower of Manson. Manson has sent them there to collect, or really rob, Henman of some inheritance money they believe he has come into. Henman denies having any money. Bobby calls Manson to relay the news, but Manson doesn't accept it. He drives to meet them at Henman's home himself. After he arrives, he strikes Henman with a sword, nearly cutting off his ear and seriously wounding him. Then Manson tells them to deal with Henman. The three of them spend the next two days torturing Henman. And finally, on July 27th, they stab him to death. When they leave, they draw the symbol of the Black Panthers on the wall in Henman's blood, hoping to convince the police it's a racially motivated attack. But then Bobby is pulled over just a few days later driving Henman's car. And now Charles knows the walls are closing in. He's not going to be a music star, and he might not even be a free man for long. So he convinces his followers that now is the time for them to act. It's up to them to start the race war he's been preaching about for the last year. On August 8th, Manson orders several family members to go to the house on Cielo Drive, the place he knew as Terry Melcher's house, and kill everyone there. And they do. Following orders, the family members kill the five people they find at the Cielo Drive house that night. Sharon Tate was eight and a half months pregnant at the time with film director Roman Polanski's baby, who, of course, later in life was accused of rape. They also kill Tate's friends, celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, coffee heiress Abigail Folger, and actor Wojtek Frykowski, and Stephen Parent, who had been visiting the caretaker of the home. The family writes pig with Tate's blood on the front door as they leave. The bodies are discovered in the morning, and it immediately sends shockwaves through Hollywood. The next night, August 9th, determined to continue the killing, Manson and several family members drive around for hours looking for their next victims. Manson orders them to go to 3301 Waverly Drive in the Los Feliz neighborhood. It's the home of supermarket executive Leno LaBianca and his wife Rosemary, which, side note here, 3301 Waverly is still standing. It was last listed for sale in 2019 for $1.98 million. The agent notes on the listing, please research before showing. 
So why did they choose this address? The best guess is that it was next door to a house that Charles had attended a party at one time. So yeah, random and chilling. They enter the house, bind the LaBiancas, and put pillowcases over their heads. In the early morning hours, they stab them to death. They write rise and death to pigs on the walls in blood once again as they leave. That entire summer becomes a nightmare in L.A. The murders at Cielo Drive are front-page news week after week, as no killers have been caught. The different agencies and precincts handling the Cielo Drive and La Bianca murders aren't communicating well, and the LAPD tells the public that the crimes have no connection to each other. But the truth is, they have no idea. Over the course of the next few months, several Manson family members go down for various other crimes, including their car theft ring. Finally, detectives are talking to a motorcycle gang member who'd done security for the family, and he tells them that the family are responsible for the murders. The LAPD is finally able to connect the crimes to Charles Manson and the family, and the rest is history. Charles Manson and the other murderers are convicted and have since, with the exception of one member who was paroled in 1985, spent their lives in prison. Charles Manson died in 2017 of complications from colon cancer at the age of 83. The murders Charles Manson and his followers commit in the summer of 1969 shatter the image of the peace-loving hippie. And they fit into another narrative that is taking hold in America, that the counterculture and civil rights movement of the time are destroying the fabric of American society. The decade that had started with so much promise and prosperity has ended with one of the most violent and sensational crimes in U.S. history. And in Los Angeles, a place that was seen as a haven for creative souls, free love, and openness, a piece of its dark underbelly has been revealed. Free love, it turned out, wasn't always free. The stories of Manson and the Black Dahlia share the same DNA, which cut both ways for the people following the tales. For some, L.A. is a city whose excess and larger-than-life characters are viewed with longing. It is a cultural and aspirational mecca. But for another huge swath of America, it's viewed with utter contempt as a sordid modern-day Sodom. And it's a narrative the media was only too happy to serve up. Casting L.A. in a front-and-center role in our national morality tale. As we'll see, this only continues... In fact, it becomes more and more chiseled into the city's character, so much so that it becomes as much a reason for the crime as the spin that's put on it afterward. We've reached the end of part one of our story of Dark L.A. In part two, we're going to leave the 60s in L.A. and head to a time that couldn't be more different, the neon, disco, oh-so-ostentatious 1980s. Thanks for listening to Dark L.A. Part 1. See you in Part 2. Circa. Love the world you live in, and we'll help you explore it.